As we come tonight, there's a question before us. Why is suffering necessary? Why is the body necessary? Why is the blood necessary? There's a mystery here, and we'll do our best together to explore this. I believe there are two clear reasons why. When Matthew reported Jesus' death, he did not emotionalize or sensationalize. He simply explained, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. John was there, and he tells us exactly what Jesus cried out loud. It is finished. Then John writes, Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John 19, 30. When Jesus cried out that he was forsaken, and we'll explore this a little bit later, I think there's a sense of desperation in his voice. But when he cries out these words, it is finished. There's victory in his voice. The Bible says that Jesus was born to save his people from their sins, that he came to seek and save the lost. He was the suffering Savior, the sacrificial lamb, the only way to God, to salvation, and to eternal life. He left heaven to do this. He became human to do this. He was born in Bethlehem to do this. He suffered and died to save sinners like you and me. He gave everything. In that final moment, all heaven watched in awe as the Son of God himself died. He did it. He completed what he came to do. It is finished. I believe that we have a tendency to compartmentalize everything. Work is work, family is family, school is school, church is church. We do this even with the physical and the spiritual. And in doing so, we compartmentalize Good Friday. The cross is our symbol. This was God's redemptive plan from the beginning. And we who celebrate Good Friday, who call ourselves Christ followers, who bear his name, are called to follow in his path. We must never let Good Friday stand alone as one day in the year, or we must never let communion be another meaningless ritual. If we truly understand the tension and the beauty between grace and sin as it relates to our spiritual lives and how that pours out into our physical lives and how the redemptive suffering is the plan to ultimately show God's love and his glory in the universe, then when we come to the cross and we come to the Lord's table, our hearts will weep with joy because this will not just be something separate from the rest of our lives. When we experience the significance of the cross daily, it will change how we live. This is the first reason. The death of Christ in supreme suffering is the highest, clearest, surest display of the glory of God's grace. If that is true, then there is a striking revelation here for us. Namely, that suffering is essential to the created universe, in which the greatness of the glory of grace can clearly and fully be revealed. Suffering is an essential part of the matrix of the universe so that the weaving of grace can clearly be seen for what it really is. This is grace. Christ suffered in himself so that we might, through him, overcome our suffering. Everything, everything Christ did was accomplished through suffering. 
Everything that we will ever come to know or enjoy will focus back on the suffering act. Christ saves us by becoming what we are. He heals us by taking our broken humanity into himself, by assuming it as his own, by entering into our human experience and by knowing it from the inside as being himself one of us. But had his sharing in our humanity been some way incomplete, had it been without suffering, then human salvation would likewise be incomplete. Let me explain. As we look at grace and sin, I think our approach to the cross must be different than the way we generally think. We look at the physical suffering and are grateful. Crucifixion was a terrible, awful, horrible way to die. We've all watched the passion and we all wept at Christ's physical agony as we should have. But we must not leave it there. There is more to the cross than just the physical agony. And I think when we look at the crucifixion, it's alien to us because it's not part of our culture and we leave it there and it's not fully understood. But it was much more than physical. Here's what's very interesting. The Gospels actually have very little to say about Christ's physical suffering. In fact, the Gospel of Mark just says this, and they crucified him. That's telling. It tells us something about Jesus' suffering. Ultimately, it was unique and different. The Bible says that on the cross, he who knew no sin, never experienced any guilt, never shame, never regret, never remorse, he who lived his life in perfect innocence throughout his entire life became sin for our sake. He became the curse. On the cross, Jesus experienced something you and I can only vaguely envision. And that is the horror of what it would be like to be totally and utterly forsaken by God. To know complete separation, comprehensive spiritual darkness. That's why when we look in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says this, My soul is in anguish. He said, I am sorrowful to the point of death. The sorrow was so great on him already at this point, he thought he might die. It began in Gethsemane, eternity converging into one holy place, Calvary. Jesus fell on his face in prayer in Gethsemane. He prayed this. Let the cup pass, he cried. Father, if it's possible, let the cup pass. And there's a moment... And then Jesus says, Your will be done, Father. I will drink from this cup. I will drink from this cup so that your glory may be vindicated and my name be glorified. And so that the sheep that you have given me will see our glory and enjoy it forever. Jesus said, I will drink. What was this cup? What does this mean? Think about your sin for a moment. Your dark hours. We all sin. There are things that we are very ashamed of doing. There are things that we have great remorse, great regret over. And think about the pain of that. Think about how you would do anything to give that, have that taken back. And then think of all the sin throughout your entire life. We all have an ugly side. I'm a sinner. There are things that I regret things that cause me shame and remorse. I've been selfish. I've been proud. I've been critical. 
I have hurt people. Think about your sin for a moment. Think about the guilt and the pain of that. Think about what you would give if you could take that back. Add to your guilt, to your pain, not just that one sin, but all the sin of your life. And then add to that the sin of the person sitting next to you, and then we'll add to that all the sin and the shame and the pain of everyone sitting here. But then we'll add to that more. More shame, more regret, more pain. The destructiveness to the soul of every sin ever committed by every fallen human. Every act of physical abuse, every murder, every rape, every hate crime, every seduction, every betrayal, every deception, every genocide, every young girl sold to evil desires, and everyone who stood by and watched and did nothing. Every mean, spiteful word, every lustful thought, every self-righteous judgment, every lazy, gluttonous, slanderous word said in gossip, every conceited, ungrateful accomplishment, every act of blaming others for selfish sins, every greed-driven business deal, every sacrifice of integrity, every disparaging, pained, weary lie. Then imagine all that dreadfulness in one heart. And then imagine undergoing the judgment and anger of a hog God toward all that sin, all that tiredness, focus on you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Utterly forsaken. We can barely see, we can barely understand what Christ is going through, what's happening here. But I think we get a glimpse of eternity sometimes. We are born for relationship. And I think marriage and family... I think the selfless, humble, protective love in family and marriage, I believe it reflects a kind of relationship that we see in the Trinity, face-to-face, nothing between, between total selflessness, total giving. Right marriage, right family are our greatest sources of joy. It's what we truly live for. Christ in eternity knew nothing but perfect relationship, perfect love, perfect protection. Now he's utterly abandoned. It would not have sufficed for our Lord merely to have been pained in body, nor even to have been grieved in mind in other ways. He must suffer in this particular way. He must feel forsaken of God, because this is the necessary consequence of sin. For a human to be forsaken of God is the penalty which naturally and inevitably falls upon his breaking his relationship with God. The separation of the soul from God is spiritual death, just as the separation of the soul from body is natural death. The sacrifice for sin must be put in the place of separation and must bow to the penalty of death. Sin is evidently always, in every case, a dividing influence, putting even Christ himself as a sin bearer in the place of distance. So here's the first reason for suffering. Why the body? Why the blood? Because God's glory is revealed through the ultimate sacrifice. Christ will bear the full weight of our sin and our care. And as to my sin, I hear his harsh accusations no more. No more when I hear Jesus cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I know that I deserve the deepest hell because of my sin. But I am not afraid because of his grace. He will never forsake me. For he forsook his son on my behalf. I will not suffer for my sin, for Jesus has suffered to the full in my 
stead. He suffered to the point, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You have a full atonement, a great sacrifice, a glorious vindication of the law. Therefore, rest in peace, all of you that put your trust in Jesus. And that's awesome. I truly believe that with all my heart. That's the first reason. But there's more good news. Here's the second reason of why suffering, of why the body and the blood. Christ's suffering meets us where we are. The truth is that you and I are going to suffer in this world. Something bad is going to happen. Some pain is going to come into our life. It will happen. But because Christ's suffering, we can have a different perspective on it. Every part of the road has been traversed by our Lord's own feet. Suppose that the Lord Jesus Christ had never been forsaken. Then what would happen to us? We would be alone in our suffering, but we are not alone. Christ's suffering answers the question, how should we then live? He knows your suffering. He suffered immeasurably. Only he can sympathize. This place, Calvary, this night, Good Friday, this is where Christ meets you. He knows your suffering. The theologian John Stott put it like this. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've turned away. And in imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry, thirsty beyond tolerance, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of this. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolized divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Out of all the worldviews, all the philosophies, all the other religions, Christ alone in his suffering this night on this cross is the only one that can meet you in the midst of your deepest despair, your deepest suffering. And to me, that's a very comforting thought. There's great hope in that. What's our response at this place? As we see our physical and spiritual lives united at Calvary, what is our response at this time? Knowing that we are sinners but stand in the redemptive grace on Good Friday, I think there are three responses. The first response is a simple truth. And C.S. Lewis says it like this. 
when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. We remember the cost. We are grateful for the cost. And we are humbled before the cross. That's our first response. Our second response. Kevin has taken us through the series entitled Disruptive. It has been right on the mark. And it is entirely appropriate that we come out of the Beatitudes into the most disruptive week ever. Palm Sunday, Good Friday, the Resurrection. The Beatitudes show us how our character is to be and how we should live. It's a great lead-in to sacrifice and glory. We tend to think of Good Friday and Easter and even our salvation as one-time events. But that is simply not the case. It's ongoing. It's a journey. There are sins of identity that we carry with us our whole lives. We don't confess them one time and we're done. We continually come before the Lord and ask for forgiveness. Our faith is ongoing, not one and done. There's the question. How should we then live? To put it existentially, how should we live today, right now, at this moment, every moment? If you're a believer, if you carry Christ's name, if you have chosen to follow him, then our response is simple. Our calling is here as we approach the cross. We are called to be disruptive. We are called to be dangerous, not comfortable. Because the cross is the way we find true, sacrificial, Christ-centered life. It's redemptive. My sin is taken, but it's also the entry point to life abundant. And life abundant is defined as death to self. No separation from the spiritual and the physical. We are to show God's glory. We are to live as people forgiven. We are called to show grace to the world. By taking our own broken humanity into himself, Christ restores it. The incarnation, it was said, is an act of identification and sharing. God saves us by identifying himself with us. And the cross signifies in the starkest, most uncompromising manner that the act of sharing is carried to the utmost limits. Christ's suffering and death then have an objective result. The Son of God suffered unto death, not that we might be exempt from suffering, but that our suffering might be like his. And that's something that we can't do. We're completely incapable of ourselves. And that's why we come to him. Christ offers us not a way around suffering, but a way through it to true life, because in it he is with us, and through it others are saved. At the very heart of the Christian gospel is the cross, the symbol of suffering and sacrifice, of hurt and pain, humiliation and rejection. I want no part of a Christian message which does not, which does not call me to care. I want no part of a Christian message which does not call me to fight injustice, which requires of me no sacrifice, which does not move me beyond my earthly strength into situations in which I am completely uncomfortable. I want no part of a Christian message that does not require me to be excellent, to give all that I have. I must not offer the lame goat, the lame lamb as sacrifice. In response to the cross, I must give my best. We must take the task of becoming Christ-like seriously. 
As we come to the cross, we must ask ourselves out of Colossians 3.15, have we thoughtfully planned putting to death whatever belongs to earthly nature? This is central to the teachings of the New Testament. When Jesus taught about discipleship, he made it very clear that one could not follow him while dependent on the body. This is what we do with the tough passages in the gospel and in Paul. This is the meaning of what Jesus said about denying ourselves, about taking up our cross, about losing our life for his sake and the gospel. In Galatians 5.24 says this, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. The cross is more than one day a year. It's a way of life, true life. We have the great privilege, the great honor of being called people of the cross. Our third response. There's a simple truth to our faith. And it's a response to the cross. A simple prayer. Lord, everything I have or own or am is yours. It's all yours. I love you. The closer you step to Jesus, out of your own little story and into his larger, greater, perfect, redemptive story, the more of Jesus you get. That's our joy. That's the paradox. The template of suffering we see in the cross, the paradigm for our lives, is also our greatest source of joy. I want to reflect on something as we close. Again, somehow in our Western theology, we've taken an either-or approach, separated things that should not have been separated. We tend to take things out of context, and that's a mistake. We must not look at the cross out of context. We are sinners. We are forgiven. That's true. But we must remember what comes next, the power of the promise that is ours to claim. The New Testament writers almost always put it in this perspective. They talk about the cross and the resurrection not as separate events. Peter says that we killed the author of life. But the grave could not hold him. For true life, we can claim the promise of the resurrection while remembering the cost of the cross. This is our hope. And because of this hope, we can drink from the cup and we can worship. We have great hope. And I think Revelation chapter 5 sums it up very well. What is our final response? We worship the Lamb who was slain. Please let us stand as we read from Revelation 5 and come before him in humble worship. Revelation 5.11 Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength, and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in the heavens and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Our final response is worship. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, we give it to you. Everything that we have Everything that we are is yours. Every part of ourselves, every day. Show us what your cross, show us what the resurrection means in our lives. Show us how we then might truly live. 
the dearest idol that we have ever known. Whatever that idol be, Lord, we will tear it from its throne and worship only Thee. We love you. Amen.